Welcome to Refocus, a podcast that helps you find your focus to build a thriving creative career in the music industry. I'm your host, Rosalind Dennett. Hello and welcome to Refocus. Our guests today are the folk duo Moonfruits. Moonfruits craft contemporary folk that addresses our collective humanity with heart, wit, and wonder. Led by partners Alex Miller and Caitlin Milroy, Moonfruits pen songs in both French and English, reflecting their bilingual lived experience in their hometown of Ottawa. Moonfruits have gone from serenading market goers as buskers in Ontario and Europe to connecting with audiences in prestigious listening rooms and festivals. They've garnered multiple awards and toured their transportive live show across Canada, the US, France, Belgium, and Germany. Moonfruits' sophomore album Salt, released in October 2022, is a lushly orchestrated 12-song suite that explores what it means to the band to live, dream, and raise a child in an era of climate change and deeply socioeconomic equality. Hello, Moonfruits. Hello. Hello, Roz. So glad to get to talk to you today. Thank you for taking the time. I know that time isn't easy to come by, and we're going to get to that in a little bit when we talk (laughs) a bit about parenting. But let's take a little rewind before some of these big life changes. Can you tell me about how you met and how how Moonfruits was formed? Well, we actually met at an open mic. There was a very cool open mic at the old jailhouse turned hostel, jailhouse hostel here in town. And there was one night where I saw Kate singing a cappella on stage at open mic. And I thought, well, that's a brave lady. Also, she's pretty. And we wound up jamming in the parking lot that night. And that's kind of how both band and relationship kind of started. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair to say. We had some friend circles that overlapped in a few ways. So we'd like, we'd probably met before, but I think that was the moment where I was like, oh, this guy's cool. And then we ended up that summer, we played a lot of music in the park. I was working at a cafe and often like after shift, we close at like 11 o'clock. So we'd have these weird very late night. Like it sounds very salacious, but it was just like late nights in the park jamming because we didn't want to wake up our neighbors. <laughs> or, or in laundromats when it got or cold. Or in laundromats when it got cold. Yeah, there's suds and duds, which I don't know if it still exists in Sandy Hill anyway. We, we sang in there a bit. It was fun. When did you make that switch into performing on stages? It was rapid. I would say that Alex was really keen. He'd been in and led like a number of bands already at that point, whereas this was the first band beyond like a band I was in in high school that I'd ever been in. And so we were at very different places, I think, in terms of our sense of what our professional goals were with music. But I don't know, there was an excitement and like an energy that was palpable. And I've always been this way. I was just kind of game. So Alex was spearheading. He was booking the shows and things were happening. And I, I was way outside of my comfort zone for a long time at the beginning. It probably showed I was pretty stiff on stage, but still having a lot of fun. Like that moment where you're like, I know this could be so cool if I just kind of like can lean into it and learn and let myself grow. And so we did a lot. And and the busking was a huge part of that. Alex was a big proponent of just playing anywhere, anytime. 
and learning how to break the ice with music. So we did a lot of that at the beginning. And as anywhere, like you said, when did we move from the laundromat to the stage? Like anywhere could be a stage at the beginning. We weren't very discriminating. It was just more about having fun and making music. Were you writing songs together in that early stage? No, I would say mostly Alex was the songwriter and we would arrange them together. So we'd work out the vocal harmonies and the structure of the song, the shape of it. Pretty much that was the the input. Sometimes I'd have little lyric suggestions, but for the most part, we were arranging songs that Alex had already written at the beginning and we would rework some trad songs too. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know that there was like a thing where in working really in depth on a tune with anybody, I feel like you kind of change the DNA of the tune to a certain degree, like, like happily. So where you're kind of like braiding both of your influences together. And I, I really did feel that e- even the tunes that quote, I wrote, there was kind of a nascent identity forming there that was more than the sum of its parts. And what were some of those influences for you? Well, it's funny. I studied classical guitar for a long time, like in university. But then I also had rock bands on the side. I was like the weirdo in classical guitar that also played rock. And I was really sick of school, like really, really, really sick of school. And I I hadn't actually owned an acoustic guitar in like a while. And so I I bought my little parlor guitar, the one that if you see me on stage, has a rather sizable secondary hole. And I I sort of beelined it for Europe just to sort of play in the street. And so I I feel like the influences were as much from, say, like Radiohead, Shigaras, like that sort of world of rock and a bunch of classical stuff. And then a summer job that I had playing on a steam train where we had to learn a whole bunch of folk and trad tunes. And so I feel like all of those streams kind of ran into what would become the band kind of thing. For me, it was like definitely two things. My musical background up to that point was primarily choral. So I had joined a community choir when I was in grade two and stayed there for 10 years until grade 12. And we really dug into some fairly challenging children's choir music, which I enjoyed a lot. And I was part of all of the choirs. The chamber choir was like a 12 person choir, I think more or less by the end, that did a lot of sort of new compositions. And I remember one of my favorite pieces we did, because we traveled as well, we would tour, we went to the World Choir Games in Germany. We had this commissioned piece by a composer who was from Oakville, which is where I'm from, called John Govdis. And it was the witch's chant from Macbeth set to music. And it was super wacky. And I loved it. And I got to be one of the witches and like (laughs) sort of had this speaking role at the beginning. And we wore these cloaks that we turned into a cauldron and it was very theatrical and it really kind of opened that up inside of me. Plus it, it developed my like harmonic sensibility or whatever you want to call it. And so I think the choral side for me brought blend. Blend was a huge part of what I brought to the band, a desire to kind of make one sound with two voices and also a love of like, building harmonies that are themselves two melodies intertwined. I sang a lot of soprano two and alto one parts, which is like <laughs> D, <laughs> E, F, <laughs> F, D, E. <laughs> and so like, which is great. I also love static harmony. That's another part of me, but I really like making fun harmonic parts. And then the other thing was that I started taking some voice lessons shortly before I met Alex. In fact, that was one of the reasons why I was on stage. One of my voice teachers, her name's Roxanne Goodman. She's a voice teacher here in town. And one of her other students who sang before me had like this incredible and giant voice, Lucila Elmer. And I admired this person's voice like 
every week because I would come and my, my lesson would be after and eventually got up the courage to ask them if they wanted to jam. And so anyway, Lucilla came over and we jammed, I think once or twice. And that's how I ended up at the open mic because we were singing some stuff a cappella together and definitely working with a voice teacher in that way because I'd done some classical voice stuff on my own before, but it was more of about developing my own voice and like actually learning how to fi- find out what your voice sounds like and more body work more emotional work and some technique and that was really fun and I think I'm a really emotional person in relation to music that's my theory kind of sucks and my relationship to music is mostly emotional and but that definitely is something that I think got cultivated through working with Roxanne and the vocalist that I admire like Roberta Flack among a long list but she's pretty close to the top where was Moon Fruits at then pre-pandemic where did you find yourselves before that big life change yeah right before the lockdown we were on tour in the u.s our sort of first like tournée d'envergure like our first sort of full-on we'd done a few we'd been to the philly folk festival and done a few dates the fall prior and then we'd gone down with our pal des and des was playing cello so we were a trio for this tour which was exciting we were starting to explore being a bigger band and like we would move from one state to the next and the state we just left had like closed down for emergency lockdown. And anyway, it became clear that things were shutting down and we should go home. And so we did that. We like, but we had a, an epic drive. <laughs> we had a concert in Volusia, New York, I think on like the 14th. Yeah. And then we drove, or maybe the 13th, we drove down to Philadelphia to pick up our car because it was at our pal's place. And then we drove to- into New York City to Brooklyn to record oh. direct to vinyl like 36 takes. We did that on March 15th. Now thinking back on it was probably not a wise decision, but at the time we didn't really know. Right. So we didn't know. We did it. Yeah. And, and then all the way back home and all the way back home and we crossed the border at like 2 AM. And I remember after being grilled by the, Oh, we were really officer. grilled on our 10 CDs that he wanted us to have a special license for. And we were like, Man, it's 2 a.m. and there's a global pandemic. Can we please go home? And it's 10 CDs. <laughs> anyway, we crossed and we mm-hmm. got home and and then we were kind of like, okay, wow, uh, we don't have a job anymore. <laughs> we're a touring artist. And suddenly, you know, it became clear that that, that was going to be on pause for a long time. How did that feel? How did you react to that? It was a real grab bag of emotions because between so we're uh, self-managed and now we're working with an agent but at the time we definitely weren't and so we're self-booked and self-managed and so just the endless amount of booking promoting those bookings just just computer work like like i'd say like easily at that time 95 percent of our job was nothing to do with having a guitar in your hands or singing a note. <laughs> and so there was like a certain portion of relief just because the pace was untenable. It was really, really difficult. And I'm sure you probably have had this experience, Rosalind, but like there is no worse feeling in my mind than being on tour 
and not getting to appreciate any of the fun parts of it, like <laughs> eating new fun food and like like seeing the sights and that kind of thing, because you're booking another tour at the same time. <laughs> That's the friggin' worst. Mm-hmm. So th- there was a real kind of like collective breath. We played a lot of Boggle, like a lot, a lot, a lot of Boggle. And I think it was a, a good moment to kind of recenter and figure out what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it. The idea of slow touring really became very appealing to us. And I'm, I'm noticing like more and more artists and, and even folks in theater talking specifically about this, where it's like the very kind of 80s, 90s models of send you on tour for 300 dates a year. And once you're burned out, it's like, oh, well, get, at least you made some money onto the next artist to chew up and spit out. Like I, as a self-managed band, why would you do that to yourself, right? Like <laughs> that's that that was that was imposed from the top to extract wealth from those artists. So I think it gave us a lot of good pause. And it also throughout the pandemic, it really showed who was the winner and who was the loser when everything shuts down. The giant corporations made such a steal and so many small businesses closed. So that that was a mm. real tragedy to deal with on a, on a like almost daily basis, right? I'm, I'm going to challenge something that you said because I feel like timeline-wise, I, I wish we could go back to 80s and 90s touring because you could still sell CDs. Um. <laughs> I think that the burnout for live performing artists really hit its peak when we could no longer sell our recordings and make Uh, money off of mm -hmm. recorded music. And Mm -hmm. all of that pressure, if you wanted to make a living as an artist, a lot of folks basically had live performance as their their main income. Yeah. I mean, we really came into it this world after that change had already occurred, right? To a certain extent. I mean, we've been looking at our own numbers. We can see some change over the years with growth in streaming versus uh, merchandise sales. But I also think we find ourselves in a particular niche where the kind of person who's already interested in getting to know and supporting like an indie folk act is also interested in buying their merch to a certain extent. So our sense of reality is probably a bit skewed compared to industry-wide averages. And also our goals in terms of what we want to do professionally, but also what we expect to earn to make a living. We're modest. not we're not big scale here. So they're, they're pretty modest dreams, I think. And, and that makes a difference too. You know, if you're not having to, I've heard others who've had really, really big teams, like, and that's not to knock having support. It's just that it's more mouths to feed in a sense. And so that can sometimes, I think, be a source of pressure for a lot of performing artists. That's an interesting point about the folk audience. Do you feel like the folk audience is maybe, I don't want to say more supportive. There's certainly very supportive audiences across genre. What do you think differentiates the folk artists in terms of their their support for artists? There's a love of physical things. <laughs> I think that's part of the culture. And I, I define folk pretty Broadly, I was actually on the FMA website and looked at your definition, and I, I like it. And music by people for people, generally <laughs> speaking. There's so many incredible folk traditions, and there's a, such an interweaving and a stealing and a borrowing. And the story of colonization, many times over, is embedded in that as well. And like you can see how music has traveled with people, and it's a rich and complex history that's global. And I think the thing that is common throughout for people who like music that often gets described as folk music is that they have a love of experiences and also tangible things they can hold. And I think that that's why people are still buying merchandise and CDs to a large extent, 
but I say that not having anything to compare it to, right? I don't know what it was like before. So I could be talking on my tree, shoe, ear. I don't know what the expression is. <laughs> anyway, I could be I could be wrong for sure. <laughs> yes, it's a family show. So that's <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so the other big change that happened during the pandemic other than being off the road all of a sudden and the whole world crashing down is that uh, you made a big personal life change and had a baby. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that experience, which I'm sure during a pandemic was different than most people's experience. Yeah. Speaking for myself, I think the timing, which of course, as people the world over know, whether you've had kids or adopted kids or whether you're a parent or not, like kids come when they come. <laughs> Even people who like to plan have to sort of, uh, to a certain extent, relinquish really control yeah. with uh, with respect to that. But the timing for us just was interesting in that I think during my pregnancy, there was definitely a lot of restrictions still in place. So I was doing some things alone at the beginning. And we sort of had like a circle of both the, like a work circle and a family circle that were kind of tight knit. And we were able to visit to some extent. So we weren't totally isolated which I think was really special because I had friends who'd gone through the very same thing like a few months ahead of me and their experience was very different. Mm -hmm. And we were able to, like I gave birth at the birthing center here in Ottawa and it was really awesome to be able to go and do that. But it was kind of curious then all of a sudden you're a parent and then you're thinking about all these things that you haven't thought about in those ways before. And kids and germs, (laughs) you know, like it's, it's such a big thing. And such a big part of life. And so navigating that now and thinking a hundred times more than we did about these things before is it's definitely a shift, not only for our own sake, but just managing other people's expectations and comfort levels and then our own desire to be well enough to work. Like it's just a whole hodgepodge. You know, on one side you're thinking about, oh no, I don't want my kid who's fresh into this world without their immune system built up to get sick germ wise. And Mm -hmm. then, but on the flip side, it's like, oh, I have to sing <laughs> to I'll use my voice, which is my yeah. instrument. And mm-hmm. and if it's, you're sick, it's a bit of a different scene than being sick before where you just powered through it. And that's it. Well, this is the thing. The number of times that we sang while sick or like I would like have lost a voice on tour and still be trying to go and or just like even have a fever, like people were billeting us while we were like in various- obviously germy. <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm saying this not by any, in any kind of judgment, just that, you know, we just handled things very differently between us, but also our own expectations for ourselves for working while sick. We're definitely like there as self-employed an- people, there's no safety net. So if you don't work, you don't get paid. And if you're physically able to do it and you're not like really endangering <laughs> yourself more than a little bit, like we would just power through, like you said, and that's just, that's not entirely possible to do anymore. And I think there's probably some good in that. It's good to respect your body's limits and give yourself time to recover and heal. But it is a risk that we really worry about because there's not really protection for that at our level of like how we're yeah, operating. So, if we don't perform, we don't get paid. So Some countries do have protections for self-employed folks mm-hmm. like that you have sick days that you can call on. I'm like, wow. <laughs> France has a um, artiste intermittent thing where you have to play like X amount of shows a year, but then you you, you have uh, the same thing, like, like just like a, a living wage kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, the experience with the CERB definitely for a lot of us in the arts and culture sector, I think it was kind of like, oh, oh, this is important now. Okay. 
oh, but now that the special circumstance is over, dignity is no longer required. And please pay it back. And please pay. And not to mention, <laughs> like, there were people who were already on supports, important supports for things like disability. Compensation thresholds were lower than the minimum established for these emergency benefits. Mm-hmm. And they were not topped up, and they still are below that threshold now. I mean, it's just, it boggles the mind. If we can agree that people deserve basic things like housing and food, safety, shelter, and like just vital neighborhoods in which to like live and outdoor space to like take your kids. Like these are things that we can agree on that are just pretty core things that people need. It's so strange to me that you can do the mental gymnastics to say they're needed now, but a few months later, mm, sorry. Like, Do you think that the experience of becoming parents do you find yourself able to kind of go with the flow a bit more in in life in mm. general now? Oh yeah, for sure. I think surrender is a huge part of it <laughs> because especially in those early days with a with a newborn like sometimes everything and nothing would happen and it was just like I spent long days, I sometimes spent 18-hour days like alone with Ben because it was a point where Alex was working like three or four jobs and it was incredible to be so much with this person. But that part was actually quite isolating. There were times when I was mm-hmm. just like kind of staring at the wall, staring at Ben going like, who are you? What are we doing today? What are we doing here in the world? Like, yeah, it started to go a little bit loopy, but I have to say like, it's not all t- like it's, no. it's beautiful yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, no, and truly, like we've had yeah. such incredible support from our family, from our friends, from our neighbors. And this is the piece that actually I thought would be interesting to talk about with you, Roz, because like, if we think about, you know, how things might change, I mean, care is so obviously a community project. And I think where people feel really stuck is when they feel compelled, either by dint of circumstance or by social pressure to manage care for kids, for elders, for people in their family that need care, for friends, like on their own, or by paying for service, that those are the only two ways you can do it. I think that's unfair because just care is necessarily a communal thing. And it just becomes so obvious because it's not just about getting food in people's bellies and making sure that no one like smacks their face on the corner of the table. It's like all of this emotional work too. And to do that alone is utterly exhausting. And very isolating. And I think even doing all the regular things with just one other adult in the room for a couple of hours, it changes everything. At least it did for me. I'm speaking here from my own experience. I don't know. It's it's suddenly fun and you're laughing. And I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I mean, I laugh with Ben too, alone. I don't mean to suggest that we're all like <laughs> quite the opposite, but I don't know. It's just different when another person is there with you and sees you and you can spend time together and you can go to play groups and hang out with neighbors and just kind of share that work. And uh, we found some flow and some kind yeah. of fun workarounds that have open worlds up to us, truly. But you do kind of see that like the, the system as it stands is kind of meant for a nine to five job. It's like a lot of daycares. You have a contract for 11 months a year for the daycare. So like, like it's like everybody is going to take a vacation at the same time. Everybody's going to be present at the same time. And, and what we might find like, like a flexible option at some point, but we, mm-hmm. but we haven't yet. And, and, and an affordable option at some point, but, but we haven't yet. It's a really weird situation to be in when your world of work has such wildly different hours than the nine to five. 
And I mean, we've talked about this before, kind of leading up to FMO and the and our conference, because you know it was an issue we wanted to address and and tackle and try to affect some change. But then the reality was, oh, you know, it's not like we can have like a corral of babies that you can just go drop them off and don't go do your showcase because you're playing at <laughs> midnight or one a.m. Mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. a lot of times you're gigging after bedtime, so it's not mm-hmm. like you can take your kid to the daycare center and drop them off and go to work and come back and pick them up, right? Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I know that actually is an interesting thing. It's making me think of two things. The first is that at this caregiver affinity group at Folk Alliance that we were invited to facilitate, there was a presenter that came who themselves was a parent, and he was talking about how he would love to see a panel at one of these future conferences on how to be a family-friendly presenter, both not just in the programming that you offer, but in the then how your space is organized, what times your shows are, and how to be a presenter that cultivates an intergenerational audience on the one hand, but then also who's easy for musicians who are also parents to work with on a touring schedule, mm-hmm. that they could have childcare available for you there on site while you do your show and accommodations that work for having a kid in tow or many kids in tow. So I thought that was really cool to hear. And I'm excited to hear how like-minded folks want to build that into the touring circuit, that would be incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like if it's possible anywhere, it's possible in the folk community, you know? I totally well, agree. Yeah, right? Yeah. There's mm-hmm. such a desire to buck the status quo and try something new and exciting that's community-oriented. And I think it's a really great fit. I mean, I'm not saying those feelings don't exist elsewhere. I just don't know mm-hmm. other industries is the <laughs> truth of it. But I do think there's a yeah. there's an appetite for it here. It's like if a green room, even if all it has is like, Blackout curtains, a nightlight, a travel crib, and access to one person who has past childcare experience and who's worthy of confidence, that that kind of thing. That's That's huge. (laughs) That's enormous. Mm -hmm. It it wouldn't take much. There's nothing that really wakes a baby up more than overhead fluorescent lights that also... (laughs) Just like, there's only one switch. We cannot have... Anyway, but the other thing that it made me think of is, is just how our cities function and just the notion of having... Like when we think about how a city runs, we often like we look at transit, for example, or when public washrooms are open to consider all the times of day at which people are working. So something that would be very interesting would be to imagine like citywide or community infrastructure that would support people doing work at different times of the day. Mm. And one of those components could be childcare that's available. I mean, obviously, it's an ideal to be moving your kid in the middle of their sleeping schedule. But absent of other options, that could be something that's really useful for folks. Because surely it's not only musicians who are working at odd hours. You also have anyone doing shift work, right? And Mm -hmm. for single parents doing shift work. I feel like this kind of stuff would go under the umbrella of like what a night mayor. Well, that's what I was thinking of, yeah. Yeah. Which some some towns have, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's a daytime mayor and a nighttime mayor, and the yeah. nighttime mayor's responsibility is to think about how the city runs at night and all the things that it needs. It's kind of cool. It's very cool. I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about what your touring and, and performing life is like now and, and some of the things that you've done to navigate working in this new reality. Yeah. So we were invited, for example, to the Route 11 Festival in PEI. This was last summer. And so we decided to, to, to do it kind of like as a trial run for how we would travel with an infant. 
And so PEI is pretty far from Ottawa. And so we decided to break it up so that we were driving over three days as opposed to maybe two or maybe one like super breakneck kind of touring schedule style. Because we, we kind of found that like five hours a day in the car was like kind of the max. And we'd break that up with like a long lunch and we'd play and like break out like a soccer ball and like that, that kind of thing. And just... We, we quickly kind of found out in, in going out to PI, playing the show and coming back that actually an infant's schedule, like like what is comfortable for them, like the point where they're like, I'm tired of being strapped down to this seat or whatever, is actually probably mm, pretty close to what everybody else's bodies are saying. But we just choose to ignore our bodies and <laughs> just power through with the touring schedule. So going out, playing the show, having, this was a festival that had childcare set up for us specifically for our performances and the thing, the sound checks and that kind Mm. of thing, which is amazing. Just, just really, really lovely. And food was available and for us and for him and, and all that, but it, it felt hopeful. Like it felt like, okay, like, yes, this is a less monetized version of, of touring, but ultimately if we want to be doing this till we're like 80, I, I think, I think the, the slow burn is, is not a bad thing at all. It, it felt really kind of good in mm-hmm. uh, mind, body, and soul to, to travel a little bit slower. And so we're planning quite a lot of touring for this year, but you know, it's going to be mostly with a caregiver. So it's figuring out what vehicle to use and are using a trailer or a toolie or whatever. And so so the, the the logistical aspect has definitely increased dramatically. But it's also bringing our little one on tour. Like it's so fun. Like it's really you, you can tell that like you're you're seeing the world through their eyes and everything is everything is wow all the time. And you're like, I guess this is a pretty cool dingy motel room. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that was one of my favorite memories of that tour. Yeah. We ended up at kind of like a truck stop motel, which let's just say that the as advertised photos online and the reality in the room were were not the same. They had showed the very best that they had to offer in the photos, and that was it. <laughs> it was just this one wood paneled wall that was real nice and everything else was kind of like house of illusions but mm-hmm. ben was having a blast yeah like whoa i'm somewhere new and i'm bouncing on this bed and it's 10 p.m and like he slept in the car he'd gone to bed at his usual time and he'd woken up and it was like an, an illicit late night hang for a few minutes there and so we like read some stories and he was just anyway he was having a ball and yeah I think like it's just it's a it's a privilege to be in the presence of someone who's experiencing the world like that because then it also forces you to be like yeah 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 okay but this is actually fun like we're here with people <laughs> we were we traveled with our friend mm-hmm. and double bassist Toby which was also wonderful to have a, another person just like another set of hands and Amazing. if ever we hit our limit of dealing with a situation like Toby was such a great help and just sense of humor and diffuser and just all around great person has a ton of experience with kids anyway so just like also seeing toby and ben interact in mm-hmm. these situations was beautiful for us and it brought like the whole experience to another level and it just made us want to do it more truly amazing before we wrap up i'm so excited that we get to premiere 
a recording that we did of Moonfruits at the Folk Music Ontario Conference. Mm-hmm. It was filmed and recorded by Tim O'Reilly, mm-hmm. Sound Still Productions, who did an incredible job of making that empty hotel ballroom look <laughs> real, real magical. After getting kicked out of the pool where we were originally <laughs> going to be shooting. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about the song that that we're going to hear and, and why you chose it. So Salt is the title track of our of our new album. The original title was Salt of the Earth and, and it was a, a hearty nod to my mimar. And kind of the story goes, I, I was 17 or something like that and we were having tea together and I asked her what her thoughts were because obviously I was thinking about it around reincarnation. At that time too, I had had a couple of students that I thought, hmm, this is not your first time here. <laughs> You're teaching somebody wow. and, and you can tell that like they're a very old soul. And um, and what, what would you like to be reincarnated as grandma? And, and her answer was, actually, uh, yeah, heaven is good enough for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then she turned the question on me and there was like a big awkward silence that followed. And I basically said, I don't know. I thought maybe a drop of water or something would be a cool, cool answer and, and a true one. But a few days later, I, I sort of sat down and, and wrote the, the poetry to Salt. And then many moons after that, met Kate and we put the tune together. And this is a special tune for us because it actually featured as like a bonus track sort of on our first ever CD. And it was a live recording. A live recording, yeah. On the second printing of our first CD. That's right, the second printing. (laughs) (laughs) The first one I think we burned on our our own computer. (laughs) And so it's a a pretty special tune for us. It's, it repeats. It's a bit, a bit like sort of a gospel formula, you know, you just, it's almost like a mantra that, that repeats and repeats. And and we got to collaborate on this one with just a bunch of really fine musicians flying in their parts through the pandemic. And some of us got to be in studio together and all of it was put together with a little studio magic at the end. But, but recording it live as a seven piece, which is what we did and what you're describing, Roz, was so fun. And we'd just done our official showcase performance. So I think it was like, we hit a beautiful sweet spot of being amped and like rehearsed and ready, but like just relaxed and ready to have some fun. So it features Toby Meese on double bass, mm-hmm. Liv Cazola on pedal organ and voice, Braden Phelan on voice, Maddie O'Regan and Sam Clark on fiddle, and then nice. Alex and I, and mm-hmm. it's fun. <laughs> Well, I can't wait for everyone to hear it. And you can see the video on, we'll link it in the show notes. It'll be up on our website. You can see the beautiful video. But for now, please enjoy Salt. Even oceans can recall the smell of summer grass. Even Arctic Colds have known the sea from sand to glass. Sunshine glows on rows of stone where spring has found its fall. Harbingers of life on seas we all have never known. Summer girls, even after cause of no, they see. 
You just heard Salt by Moon Fruits. Caitlin and Alex, what's coming up next for you folks? We are going to be going on tour this summer and fall. You can find those tour dates on our website, moonfruits.ca. And you can follow us at Moonfruits Music on all the things. All the things. And we'll uh, link to your website as well as uh, to your social media if people want to follow along online yeah, and uh, you'll be able to see the uh, the video for Salt uh, up on our website at uh, folkmusicontario.org slash refocus R-E-F-O-L-K-U-S we'll have all the, the show notes up there as well Caitlin and Alex thank you so much for being here thank you Ross it was our pleasure really Thanks really appreciate it That's it for this episode of Refocus. Please subscribe, rate, and review on the podcast app of your choice so you never miss an episode. 
For more information, you can visit us at folkmusicontario.org and follow us on social media at Folk Music Ontario. This refocus session is brought to you through the generous support of the Department of Canadian Heritage. Music